Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows is my thoughts or gut instincts of what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decisions to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 25th of November 2019. What should we start with? I think we'll start with oilseed rape, which has gone up to 322x farm. The Matif is near contract highs. Currency is still sitting there reasonably firm. Same old story. It's kind of a, a luxury to have a, a market where the price is good and we think it might improve further and we're still sticking with the £330 a tonne goal. So um, not a lot more to say to that. There's not a lot we can do about the, uh, the crop that's been grown this year because it's in the barn. The one that's in the ground is um, practising its survival rate underwater. So moving on to feed barley. 121x farm is the value for feed barley. It might be 22 or it might be 20, depending on where your farm sits. It seems to be happily trading at a £20 a tonne discount to feed wheat, which is a bit of a strange distance below, but that's where it's trading and it is happily changing hands at that level. Hasn't really, really moved since harvest time. Moving on to malting barley in relation to feed barley. The maltsters tell us they've bought enough, they're done. Not totally convinced that's true. They, they're they probably kind of thinking post-Brexit news there might be an opportunity to buy something cheaper later in the season. And there's an, inevitably going to be some of the failings on germination or bugs or something along the way. So it isn't dead, but it's um, relatively lifeless. Moving on to feed wheat, which has been a bit exciting in the, the volume of tonnage. If you take you know, the old Brexit subject and trading since the 23rd of October when we found out we were going to have an extension through to January. If people truly believe Project Fear meant that, uh, you know, everyone was uh, talking rubbish when they said that trade wouldn't be free-flowing, there's been a large amount of business done since that date because Brexit didn't happen. So there has been a freeing up of markets, a freeing up of prices. Everything's gone up in value. So there is a bonus for being able to trade with Europe. And I know that upsets lots of very, very Brexity people, but the, the absolute litmus test of whether the grain trade succeeds or does more and does the price go up, despite a stronger currency, is yes, we do get on a lot better when we can freely trade the stuff. So um, there's been a lot of activity and we've been able to move stuff from farm to boats and they've left the country and we're all very happy with that. If only we'd have known in advance that we could trade in November and December a lot more tonnage would be leaving the country now, and I think that would bode better for the tail end of the season. Anyway, the price of feed wheat is 140 for movement pre-Christmas, and as you go into the new year, we think the consumers have got quite a lot to buy. Uh, we still actually think they've got some to buy before Christmas or before the end of December. So with that in mind, I think the timing issue is when the consumer comes in versus when the farmer decides to let it go. The farmer is in a slightly easier mind. We've just had four complete dry days on the trot, which is very exciting. Some of the puddles have gone even. 
So we've had a lot of people in East Anglia going onto their sugar beet fields, lifting it, ploughing it, pressing it and drilling it in the same day. So there's a, a large amount of activity and some of those fields of spuds that were being abandoned over here have also been lifted. So they, they might take a breather before they go onto them with the drill. But the reality is it's actually meant there is more acres of wheat going in the ground as predicted by a certain old person. I think the acreage of wheat is going to keep creeping upwards and obviously we're all watching the weather uh, diligently and, and hoping for more opportunities to slip more wheat in the ground. That increased planted acreage has brought farmers to the market so they've sold new crop a bit, probably 10-20% if they've planted it and that's enabled them to sell a little bit of old crop as well. There's a story that says perhaps you ought to be selling that at these prices so with that, the market on new crops dropped three or four pounds and looks like it's going to continue that trend for the next day or so, certainly until we get some more rain forecast. So I think, I think we're, we're going to find a slightly lower place to be trading new crop wheat and inevitably that will have a knock-on effect to old crop once we get past this more buyers than sellers period, which leads up to Christmas and the early part of the new year. The prospects, I think, for old crop wheat, the tail end of the year, price may about 147 you know you might squeeze to someone paying you in east anglia 150x for july that is a pretty hefty price and i think it's going to ease back from there and if we look at the new crop price if we take a november value at 147x farm that is a discount to the july price hence there will be no carry of old crop to new crop and more importantly if you push through to may 21 154x well, 150 plus price per ton, I am told if you, the yield is only 75% of what you're expecting, is not enough to make money. And there is the argument, is 154 a good price or is it not good enough to make a profit? And, I, and you can debate that as much as you like. If the rest of the world keeps producing lots of wheat, then I'm afraid that's where the price is going to be. So our prediction is that I think in the immediate short term, farmers are going to actually trade new crop, a percentage of it as, a, as an insurance, and they will trade old crop eventually. That one will come out of the mist probably more in January. Longer term prospects, I think old crop is, is more likely to go down because we've got to create that carry to new crop. And new crop, I think, won't go down very far because there is a dramatic impact on yield from this autumn's planting. So we're going to see a 13 million tonne crop of wheat maximum, and that means we're going to have to have a carryover from old crop or we'll have imports. So we are predicting that although new crop will still sentiment-wise drop a bit, I don't think it's going to go down very far. That is our view as of this date. The only other exciting thing that's happened this week I'd like to just mention is the Aylsham Grain Grain Store, the cooperative that we manage, had its AGM yesterday. And the observation I would make is that if you screw up managing a cooperative, you ensure that you get hundreds of people at your AGM. I'm very delighted to report that we had two members turning up for the AGM and we overbought the sandwiches and cakes which the office shared in. So uh, we must be doing something right. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Hey, this is an advertising space. Reach hundreds of leaders of agriculture, mostly in Norfolk, by advertising here. It's surprisingly good value. If you're interested in finding out how much, email us, hello 
at tinshedproductions.co.uk. Much, much cheaper than any local newspapers and straight into the ears of your potential customers. This week, Andrew and Ian are back with part two of our farm chat with Jake Fines, General Manager of Conservation at Holcomb Estate. Part one of this farm chat was episode 56 on the 7th of October. Hi, we're back with uh, Jake Fines again for another instalment. Jake, how are you? We're going to go straight into an area which is conservation shooting. How does that stand in in the future in... uh, Currently, currently, do the currently do the two go I together? Think that was a slightly dodgy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> conservation and shooting, not necessarily conservation shooting. Conservation um, shooting is don't put any lead in your cartridges. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah who'd have thought when I'm on a peg? Actually, I've barely got any lead in the cartridges at all. But conservation, in in my eyes, I think a lot of these shoots, they do or the the shoots preserve the countryside, and they do look after certain. You're on the dodgiest ground ever. An estimated 60 million birds released on into the countryside with no environmental audit, no impact assessment. The culling of the culling of species 365 days a year with no justification. Planting of vast areas of maize that feeds the pigeons, that eats the rape, that encourages the rats, that causes us to put poison out in the fields, that kills the barn owl. Quite damning again, isn't it? <laughs> do you shoot, Jake? Yes, I do. I love it. <laughs> And I, I, I'm very lucky to have applied for a, a license. I have a general license to cull jays, and I do, I do like the challenge of jay shooting. If I'm honest, but but there there lieth the issue. You, the, the way you described, you know, what what goes into a shoot being there. You know, I, I, I asked the question: if if you didn't have shooting, how many pheasants would you see? How well would the pheasant survive without? It's it's all linked to when we met. A few weeks ago, it's it's all linked. The f- the food production, the biodiversity, and the harvesting of wild game within the landscape are all intrinsically linked. Okay. So if we if we uh, farm more sustainably and produce high quality, high yielding crops, sitting alongside nature conservation yeah. that benefits all the birds and mammals that we've lost following the Save Nature report, um, we can also have surpluses as we historically always did. Of wild protein. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the, there's going to come a point when the the system in place at the moment is going to be challenged, and I mean, there's a whole lot of jobs attached to that. It's the the, the system was challenged by uh, an organisation called Wild Justice mm. with a general license. It was then subsequently challenged again with the releasing of 60 million game birds into the landscape. They're challenging driven grouse shooting. So, you know, shooting has to evolve. Shooting has been, has gone through this transition. We uh, we, we now employ 2,500 gamekeepers, where historically we employed 25,000. We had a farmed environment that benefited game. If we look at grey partridge on the State of Nature report, They've seen their population drop by 92%. You have to, there are quite significant efforts for those that currently maintain stable populations of grey partridge. There are significant efforts from the game department as well as the farming department to sustain those sort of levels for any sort of shootable surplus. Do you think there'll be, so there will be pressure going forward, do you think? There is pressure now. There is currently the general licence is under consultation. And I urge anyone that has any interest, whether it's a crop protection 
or it's a preservation of nature or it's a game interest to apply that and the deadline is the 5th 4th of December what it does ask you it asks you for please provide evidence why you should be this species should be on the general license the sad thing is is none of us keep evidence uh, we all need to be better at recording what we're doing, why we're doing it, and when we're doing it. Then we've then got the lead ban. So Waitrose uh, announced that they won't be putting birds with lead on their shelves. Uh, John Swift, ex-Basque, is quite adamant that we should be uh, remove lead from all aspects of protein foraging. So that's including deer. Uh, Denmark or Sweden has banned lead for 40 years. Um, so it is possible to carry on. There are other substitutes. They're extortionately expensive. Jake, I was just just going back to the initial report and the state of nature. It was a pretty spooky number they came in. One in seven UK species were likely for extinction, which is pretty worrying. The responsibility isn't completely at the farmer's door. I mean, there was another bit. They were talking about public spending on UK biodiversity was down 42% a proportion on GDP. I mean... Are they going to offer a lot of support in the future? So the responsibility of the environment lays with 66 million people that live in the UK. I'm not saying it's it's completely specifically the farmer. It's it is yeah everyone, Every, everyone, and globally if we want to be looking. Well, at and globally, yeah. No, there was a wonderful interview with David Attenborough I saw this morning. You know, Said in 2020, the importance of it's actually it's global business and it's 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 governments, global governments that actually want to start making the difference. And then that just comes down the food chain, as it were. And in terms of financial support for agriculture and farming, is that the way forward from government? The proposals from the Natural Capital Committee is it's a payment for public goods, and DEFRA are currently looking at that, and it's a, uh, we will pay you for a service, clean water, healthy soils, a vibrant environment, um, mm-hmm. and health and well-being. So these are also these are services that farmers could deliver are sitting alongside their food production. Talking about food production then, a lot of these schemes, and we're talking about pulling land out of production, which will help the biodiversity, but what about food price inflation? Uh, that's a tricky one, and no Secretary of State will be the one to be sat in the in the chair that increases food prices. Dieter Helms, the polluter pays principle, is the one that actually starts to pay for that. That's it. it's quite radical thinking. It is a seismic change in the way we produce our food, in the way we manage parts of the land landscape. Mm. Um, I've just finished the uh, being on the on the panel for the National Parks Review, and we've uh, changed the key objectives of national parks to be you know amazing, beautiful landscapes. We drive through them and it looks stunning, mm. but actually it's devoid of nature. They're quite. They're not huge food production areas but actually are the farmers and the farmers i've spoken in the, to the peak district and the lake district um, and the broads uh, where the land is least productive would you be prepared to effectively be a park keeper and actually the slim majority would probably they maintain their lifestyle they have a wonderful network a community network within those mm-hmm. sparsely populated areas yeah. there are lots of people and you know they're maintaining that landscape for the good of the nation and they're mm-hmm. quite happy but quite frankly farmers have always been their support that the support mechanism hasn't necessarily been about food production it's been trying to suppress food prices no it's interesting telling a, a farmer effectively almost not to farm it's what they are I, so I, I went to, to the test and trials um, in the Peak District and we met, met a farmer, a sheep farmer, 
who had a and compared to you know the barley barons of Norfolk, you know he had a he had a take home income of eight thousand pounds a year on 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 his two hundred mm-hmm. acre farm. You know that's you know yeah. most of us can't even. Uh, and he so he was doing these tests and trials. Uh, and one of them was a wildflower meadow. So in the Peak District, you've got all these meadows that have lost their, their diversity. And the way the system works was the more species you have, a particular species, you get paid a higher price. Okay. Yep. Uh, and hats off to him. Th- thought like a farmer, as I would expect, nothing less. And he was buying rare species plant plugs and putting them in his meadow, <laughs> thereby increasing his income. Hats off to him. But commercial, that's but yeah. we need to. But he's yeah. being commercial. But actually, he's he's delivering the objective at the same time. Yeah. So I have I I have no problem with that at all. Yeah. Well, that 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 is the point that farmers have been phenomenally successful at delivering on what they've been asked to do. You know, when when the country needed food, dig for victory, off they went and did exactly that. And since we've been in the European Union, the the subsidy system has encouraged phenomenal production as the way to make the money. So it's got to be top-down lead uh, agreed and many blame the current system for the diminished diminished environment that we now live in so yeah. uh, and i think uh, my belief if we go down this route of payment for public goods i think farmers will produce food more efficiently and effectively and they will then deliver biodiversity that sits alongside that is part of the farming system it's mm. got to be farm don't walk away from it. Yes, we, there, are, there are places for wilding and rewilding or, or long or 25, 35-year 30, 30, uh, scrub coppice, things like that, that's still within a farming system. I think it's like 90% of species in the, in the UK benefit for some sort of rotational management, whether it's a hay crop, whether that's a wheat crop, or whether that's rotational coppice. Jay, just to sort of hijack and selfishly pick on something, and which for me is very topical, is rapeseed and neonics and growers are falling out of love with rapeseed because they can't get the crop. And I'm not I'm saying it's the neonics thing is wrong, but um, it is having problems and farms are ripping up huge waves, maybe as much as 20% this year, which in turn leaves less rapeseed for the bees. So it's it's a very difficult balance, isn't it? Okay, so um, yeah, so the 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 si- the, si- the science <laughs> the science for neonics is becoming stronger and stronger. It was challenged initially, but the evidence is stronger that it does have some sort of effect. Latest, there was a report for birds in the states population okay. decreases in birds because when they stop off in the grain belts of America on their migration, the food they're eating suppresses their appetite and then they okay. don't have the condition to continue okay. and they just fall off the perch. So we're starting to see. So these are neonics. It's not a straightforward. It's a DDT poison that's being passed on from one species to another. This is having an effect on appetite. This is having an effect on bees through their how they navigate through the landscape. Um, so it's very complicated. It's, it's, it's not mm. cut and dry, but it's complicated, and the evidence is getting stronger. So when I walk through a rape field, I don't see your bees. I never did. Mm, okay. They were never there. If I walk through my flower margin, it's humming. Hum, yeah. I've played around with catch crops, cover crops, rapes, fodder rapes for feeding sheep, left them to naturally do their thing. 
and when I walked through that, there were hundreds of thousands of bees. The bees, yeah. And this, had, this was just, there was no yeah. seed treatment. Mm. I'm not saying the seed treatment was part of it. Mm. There was no fertilizer application. There were no any sort of applications at all. And it was, it was alive with bees. So there is, I need an agronomist in the room to tell me what the prescriptions are for growing rape. And I know there, is, there are other treatments beyond the mm. seed dressing, but it is not a crop that's full of bees. I think you just completely shot down my argument there. I was trying to defend the uh, the rapeseed plantings the near next, but yeah, that's um, very compelling. So then we talk about cabbage stem flea beetle. My belief, it's so. What we need to do, farmers need to be more in tune with the natural process of nature. I spoke to some farmers. I was at the. I represent the NFU's Environment Forum for the Eastern Region, and we were we had a regional uh, board meeting. And everyone was looking at establishment of rape. Those that established early, not a problem. Those that established late with the rain we just had, not a problem. Those, historically, rape was always established the middle of, middle of August. Those guys got crucified by flea beetle. Because the natural process, and this is just me looking at trials that I've done for my own pleasure, that actually flea beetle is naturally suppressed in late July, June, because that's its natural cycle. And then it builds up in the middle of August, when actually we've all, because we've all had the seed dressing, it wasn't a problem because we just drilled it and nothing touched it. And then it falls back again in September. So we get better establishment at the, at the end of July, early August, and in September. But historically, no one would ever dream of drilling rape in September. Because you wouldn't get a, a sufficient plant. Is that just quickly? So the, is that so? End of the first week of August, and then your first week of September. Is are they what you're saying? So they speak, the farmers I spoke to on Monday, those that had had good establishment without any, because uh, it's really at the cotyledal stage. They hammer the hammer the plant. Uh, once it got to the true leaf stage. Uh, there were no issues, and those that had drilled were drilling the beginning of August or the end of July, had good establishment. They might have issues, you know. The big worry is that it starts to send up a, a stem, and we're worried about the snow, but actually with global warming, that might not be a problem anymore. No, no that's an important point, a really important point. Um, so, so that was always why we didn't establish rape early, and late was actually, we didn't establish late because if you get the first frost and then the plant stops growing and actually you're not going to get good establishment. And pigeons. 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 Flocks and flocks of pigeons. If you don't get the cover, the, the, the pigeons have got something to feed on all the way through the winter. And the pigeon population, there's a direct correlation with the pigeon population and the sown area of rape. So we actually, we cause our own problem by growing more rape. We encourage more pigeons. There, there seems to be less pigeons about at the moment. That's because there's, that's because there's cabbage stem flea beetle. There's no rape. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're, they're, I mean, I'm just are these kites taking them out or something? That is just, I'm like, that's just an observation. That there's pigeons has been a the, the curse has been has been a, a population boom of pigeons. Uh, I would agree. I'm not seeing um, big flocks of pigeons. I don't, I'm not seeing um, moving from South Norfolk to North Norfolk where the pigeon bags were always a lot higher. I'm not seeing anywhere you would get a big pigeon bag. It, it's, it's, it's anecdotal observation, but, you know, we now have these, these big birds of prey hanging around, and I, I understand they do, do well, um, take pigeons out? Not, I don't think a buzzard would... Uh, it's not, it's quite, they're quite sluggish. What about the kites? Are they, they kites, do? no, they're, they're mainly carrion. Are they? Yeah, so just all those muntjac and pheasants that get knocked over the road in February. 
the kites tend to feed off those. We talk about the pigeons and rape establishment. So we have good rape establishment, and then what farmers have, and we were looking wanted good coverage. Mm. Then actually, it was less is more. So actually, less you get plants with more space throw out more branches and produce more yep. seed. Yep. So there's been change in technology in how much we... And I think the same would apply to cereals, is actually give the plant a bit of space, it actually produces more, whereas before we've tried to cover the whole field. Yeah, so, I mean, allowing the pigeons to, to chew it off a bit, that's just I've seen bits that are, that are bare at the end of the time, but... You're right. I, I think you. I think people could plant later now. I think that you can rely on the autumn to be mild. You know, last few years, you can plant at the end of November, and your wheat crop will look the same as it used to look when people planted at the start of October, at the end of January. You know, when, when you get to the end of Jan, it's there. It's it's not going to be any better for being lots of leaves or two leaves. So sometimes you start seeing uh, rape in flower in February. Yeah, it, odd stalks. You know, you yeah. stop because I, it's because I it's think smart. they can stick it in later. Wait till a bit flea beetle go and stick it in in October. And and why aren't people trying that? Well, no one seems to be talking about that. As a, our agronomist friends, I'm obviously a grain trader. What do I know? But there's some logic to it. I think there is, uh, and it's because everyone's getting warmer that we can actually plant later. Yeah. Probably beast, um, beast from the East number two comes along. <laughs> you heard it here first. There is a worrying um, decline in bird populations, isn't there, generally? Yeah, how, how do we encourage bird populations back? I mean, you talk about the margins. You suggested in the earlier podcast about hedgerows and leaving some of those. Are there any other things that our farmers could be put into practice? So we're, we're just embarking on a project at Holcombe. A farm has come back into production, or it's come back in hand. It's The great thing is it's only 250 acres, 100 hectares. Uh, it's the size of an average English farm um, because because we are a large land occupier. Sometimes it's perceived that we can do, we can do this because we're so big, but actually this will be transparent. We will be demonstrating, we will be surveying the living daylights out of it from soil quality to biodiversity, hedge assessments, breeding bird surveys, pollinator surveys. We'll see where we are when we took the farm on and we're aiming to demonstrate what measures we can put in place to change that. So in part of the rotation, there will be a, a regenerative crop and I've uh, thrown the challenge to the farms department to come up with a catch crop cover crop that has multiple benefits. So the 60,000 pink feet geese that historically came to the North Norfolk coast to feed on sugar beet tops, and we change the way we harvest our beet. There's less top. We tend to plough in early and then... Um, drill cereals, so there's there's a loss of food source. The pink-footed geese are now feeding on potatoes because there's been an investment in water. Should we stop potato production or reduce it significantly? How can we carry on feeding these geese that have flown thousands of miles to, to overwinter on the North Norfolk coast, which is iconic to that landscape in the winter? You know, yeah, I'm just yeah. I, I sit with my gob wide open as geese daily fly to and to and from over my office or my home. So it's really special and we need to maintain that. So can we look, so I challenge the farm, can we look at a crop that can be great for the soils, that can be great for the LBJs that utilise the fields in the winter and feed them and can also feed geese? So, you know, we, can we have multifunctional species that are benefiting everything? I think we can. We just need to 
think think laterally you know just open your mind to new ideas big challenges but yeah very interesting right we're gonna we're gonna wind up thanks jake pleasure thanks for listening make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, we can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewandgrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewandgrain. The Dewing Grain Podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.